the power to propose and enact, which are the words of the California Constitution, have not been nullified. They have not been vetoed. The Attorney General and the Governor are enforcing Proposition 8. Otherwise, my clients would be married today. Do straight men truly think that everything women do or anything they wear is for their approval? Unfortunately, the way the media portray women contributes to this misconception. Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Greg Gordon. China's government censors girly men, Prop 8 drama underscores the power of the courts, and outcaster Isha eyes the male gaze. All that and more this week because you've discovered This Way Out. I'm Melanie Keller. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With Newswrap. A summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending September 4th, 2021. The Chinese government is banning effeminate men from appearing on television. The National Radio and TV Administration told broadcasters this week to resolutely put an end to sissy men and other abnormal aesthetics. Actually using the pejorative term, Niang Pao in the edict. That's literally girly guns. As part of President Xi Jinping's campaign of national rejuvenation, broadcasters must now vigorously promote excellent Chinese traditional culture, revolutionary culture, and advanced socialist culture, according to the Associated Press. They must also avoid promoting vulgar internet celebrities and their accumulation of wealth. Reducing the influence of male South Korean and Japanese singers and actors it deems not masculine enough seems to be the Chinese government's particular obsession. The education ministry had already announced plans to increase physical education classes and school sports to promote the masculinity of so-called effeminate boys. The new rules also prohibit anyone under the age of 18 from playing more than three hours of online games a week and bans any play on school days. This week's actions seem to continue the government's crackdown on LGBTQ people and culture. Queer content on popular social media platforms recently disappeared, and this week, China's version of Snapchat was hit. QQ has banned the words gay, lesbian, and LGBTQ as Pink News reported. Those search words triggered a warning message that first said, use the internet in a civil manner, say no to harmful information. Now it just says, no results found. Meanwhile, several pro-Beijing lawmakers in Hong Kong are renewing their objections to the upcoming gay games. Set to be the first games to ever be held in Asia, they're scheduled in the city for November of next year. Right-wing lawmaker Peter Shui said that, We can tolerate homosexuality, but we should not promote it. Shui's colleague Priscilla Leung believes that the games threaten to tear society apart. Legislator Junius Ho commented that, Whatever you do in your room, it's your own business, but if you do it in public, it's disgraceful. In his opinion, the almost one billion Hong Kong dollars expected to flow into the city as a result of the games would be dirty money. Earlier this year, Ho claimed that opening civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples would promote bestiality and incest. Gay games organizers are resisting the negativity. 
Director of Fundraising and Partnerships, Christoph Wittig, told the Sydney Star Observer, I think these comments continue to demonstrate why we need the gay games and why we need them in Asia. Co-chair Dennis Phillips said, We are confident in and remain committed to holding the games in Hong Kong. Anti-queer political rhetoric notwithstanding, the most recent public opinion polls show an increasing acceptance of LGBTQ people in Hong Kong. However, Taiwan Gay Games officials are saying that they will not be sending their athletes to Hong Kong next year because of fear for their safety. Homophobia bordering on the absurd has reached Pakistan. An Islamist political party member had a large billboard at a busy intersection in the city of Gujranwala taken down. It celebrated the birthday of John Shonkuk of the hugely popular South Korean boy band BTS. Forkan Aziz Butt of the Jahamat-e Islami Party is running for the provincial assembly. He charges that BTS has a negative influence on young people in this city and encourages them to behave in wrong activities. They promote homosexuality. Butt had the tribute removed a few hours after it had been called to his attention on Facebook. The billboard was paid for by Pakistani members of the worldwide BTS fan club known as The Army. After a brief celebration of the colorful billboard showing a picture of Jean-Cook and wishing him happy 24th birthday from Jean-Cook BTS Gujranwala Army, members have angrily tweeted about its sudden removal. Zainab Zaman is a 24-year-old student and fan from Islamabad. He wrote, Older people are of the opinion that their physical features and attire are too feminine. BTS has never used vulgar verses in their songs. They are just about loving yourself and being happy. While none of the seven BTS members are openly gay, Pink News says that they have made statements in support of LGBTQ rights. Australia's government scuttled efforts this week to protect transgender, diverse, and intersex people from workplace discrimination. The proposed amendments to the Sex Discrimination and Fair Work Respect at Work Report Amendment Bill 2021 were supported by the Labour and Green parties. Liberal Party Prime Minister Scott Morrison's coalition of right-wing parties controls Parliament. Attorney General Michaela Cash claimed that protections based on gender identity and sex characteristics were not part of the recommendations of the recent Respect at Work report and would require further consideration. Australia already bans bias in the workplace based on race, disability, sex, and sexual orientation. Dr. Charlie Burton of the advocacy group Just Equal Australia argues, This was a simple, straightforward amendment that would have brought consistency to federal law and would have brought greater job security to transgender, diverse, and intersex Australians. He pointed to surveys that show that transgender Australians experience greater workplace discrimination than gay and lesbian Australians who are already protected. Burton called the government's opposition hard-hearted. Transgender, diverse, and intersex people were not the only people left unprotected. The Sydney Star Observer reports that majority MPs also rejected recommendations that would have shielded women from sexual harassment on the job. Attorneys general from 20 U.S. states are attacking the Biden administration's efforts to protect LGBTQ people from discrimination. Tennessee AG Herbert Slattery is leading the charge from the Republican-controlled states. So their lawsuit was filed this week in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Tennessee. The defendants are the U.S. Department of Education and the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission.
The suit charges that White House guidance to those agencies to follow the U.S. Supreme Court's 2020 Bostock decision against anti-queer workplace discrimination is illegal. Slattery claims, This case is about two federal agencies changing law, which is Congress's exclusive prerogative. The other states joining in the lawsuit are Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, and West Virginia. Many of those Republican-controlled states have passed laws limiting the rights of transgender people, mostly to prevent trans athletes from competing in school sports according to their gender identity. Arkansas is also the first state to prohibit gender-affirming health care for trans youth. That law and a few of the trans athlete bans have already been blocked by federal judges. The Biden administration has yet to comment about the lawsuit. Finally, the late trailblazing black trans activist Marsha P. Johnson would be proud. New York City officials announced plans for a monument to both Johnson and Sylvia Rivera in May 2019. The Stonewall Rebellion veteran has finally received that honor because local activists decided to do it themselves. Queer artist and sex worker Jesse Pelota created a bust of Johnson and it was ceremonially installed in Christopher Park near the Stonewall Inn on August 24th, which would have been her 75th birthday. Writer and activist Eli Ehrlich told CNN, We cannot stay idle and wait for the city to build statues for us. We must create representation by and for our own communities. She shared photos of the bust on Twitter, noting that it's the city's first statue of a trans person, and shockingly, only the eighth statue of a historical woman out of 800 monuments in New York City parks. Activists insist that the bust should only be temporary. They continue to push city officials to honor their more than two-year-old promise to create a monument to Johnson and Rivera. A lifelong fighter for queer rights, Johnson co-founded STAR, the Street Transgender Action Revolutionaries. A plaque on the base of the bust bears a quote from Johnson herself. History isn't something you look back at and say it was inevitable. It happens because people make decisions that are sometimes very impulsive and of the moment. But those moments are cumulative realities. That's News Wrap. Global Queer News with Attitude for the week ending September 4th, 2021. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can read the transcript and listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Michael LeBeau. Stay healthy. And I'm Melanie Keller. Stay safe. It's kind of sad that we have to say it, but women are complete human beings independent of the intention or judgment of men. Surprise! Women are people. Later in the program. The power of the U.S. judiciary to change people's lives on a dime has never been more evident than it's been this week. Reproductive rights advocates and women around the country are panicking after the Supreme Court's decision to leave abortion access vulnerable to partisan state politics. 
In 2011, the fate of marriage equality was put into the hands of a state high court by a partisan-driven battle royale. I reported on that historic courtroom drama ten years ago this week. Love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage This I tell you, brother You can't have one You can't have none You can't have one without the other The California Supreme Court heard more than an hour of oral arguments on September 6th about who could defend a voter-approved state ballot initiative in a federal challenge to its legality. The backers of the marriage equality banning Proposition 8 told the state high court that as the measure's sponsors, they are entitled to step in if state officials refuse to do so. Opponents argued against such legal standing. They insisted that as elected representatives of the people, only the governor and attorney general have the authority to defend state laws. Former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger chose not to do so. His successor as governor was then Attorney General Jerry Brown, and he's consistently chosen not to do so. Current Attorney General Kamala Harris also agrees with District Judge Ron Walker's 2010 ruling that Proposition 8 violated equality provisions of the U.S. Constitution. State Supreme Court justices voted 4-3 to three in May 2008 to open civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples. But the passage of Proposition 8 later that year reversed their ruling. The High Court then upheld the legality of the measure in 2009, although it also validated the estimated 18,000 same-gender marriages that had been performed before the passage of Prop 8. The issue then entered the federal court pipeline in 2010, beginning a journey to what many believe will be its final destination, the U.S. Supreme Court. The struggle of California's gay and lesbian couples to legally marry seems to require climbing every single rung on a very tall legal ladder. Christopher Martinez of Pacifica Radio's California Evening News reports from San Francisco on the latest of those rungs. The question of whether same-sex couples have the right to marry in California has been argued in state court, at the ballot box, and in a federal trial. Now it's back in the state Supreme Court, where supporters of same-sex marriage are trying to block Prop 8's proponents from representing the state in further hearings. Lawyer Theodore Olson says Prop 8's backers were not harmed by a federal ruling against the measure, and they cannot assume the power of the Attorney General to defend Prop 8 in court. Is the initiative power convey with it the power to represent the state to the proponents. Does the reservation of legislative power constitute a delegation of executive power to represent the state of California in an initiative challenge? And I submit that the answer to that is no. There is no case from this court or the California courts that say so. There is no constitutional provision. There is no statutory provision. The previous round in the Prop 8 dispute led to a ruling by Federal District Court Judge Vaughn Walker, who found the Prop 8 ban on same-sex marriage unconstitutional. Prop 8's proponents took the case to a federal appeals court after Governor Jerry Brown and Attorney General Kamala Harris decided not to appeal that ruling. Now the appeals court has to decide whether initiative proponents have legal standing to appeal, and it asked the state Supreme Court to weigh in. Lawyer Charles Cooper argued the case for the proponents. 
Your Honor, uh, the particularized interest of the official proponents of an initiative measure is to protect and defend their fundamental right in this court's terms to propose initiative measures to the people for their adoption or rejection. The justices seem to lean towards letting Prop 8 backers defend the measure, and they pose tough questions for opponents of Prop 8, asking whether their position would amount to giving the governor and attorney general the power to veto an initiative by deciding not to defend it in court. Justice Joyce Kennard posed that question to lawyer Theodore Olson. To agree with you uh, would nullify the great power uh, that the people have reserved to them pertaining to uh, proposing and adopting state constitutional amendments. The, the power to propose and enact, which are the words of the California Constitution, have not been nullified. They have not been vetoed. The Attorney General and the Governor are enforcing Proposition 8. Otherwise, my clients would be married today. The state Supreme Court will issue its ruling sometime in the next 90 days, but that ruling will only be advisory once the Federal Appeals Court takes up the question, perhaps early next year. The Appeals Court will make its own decision on who has standing to represent the state in the Federal Prop 8 challenge, and its decision could let proponents defend the measure in a lawsuit likely to end up in the U.S. Supreme Court. Or it could stop the challenge, letting the earlier federal ruling go into effect, legalizing same-sex marriage in California. Either way, it's been a long and convoluted struggle for thousands of same-sex couples. Chris Perry is a plaintiff in the lawsuit challenging Prop 8. In 2004, we were married in that building. We were married in that building, and a few months later, that was revoked. And it was that experience that propelled us to become plaintiffs in this case because we believe that, as it turned out to be, that those rights would be revoked as well. So we didn't go through it again in 2008, but we're here to say we won't have our marriage rights taken, given and taken away from us every time if it becomes popular or unpopular. Reporting from the state Supreme Court in San Francisco, I'm Christopher Martinez. Good news, good news, ain't that good news? Are you signed up for our new e-newsletter, Inside This Way Out? We send them out every few weeks, briefly reviewing recent and previewing upcoming programming and deepening the conversation about your favorite international LGBTQ radio show. All you have to do to receive Inside This Way Out messages is email us at info at thiswayout.org. And be assured that we don't share or sell your email address or anything about you to anyone else, and we never will. Again, to receive the occasional Inside This Way Out and let us know you're listening, email us at info at thiswayout.org. News Wrap is reporting this week about the Chinese government's directive to eliminate the allegedly negative influence of so-called effeminate men from television. Way on the other side of the coin, the queer youth commentators of Outcasting Overtime are thinking about the negative influence of the objectification of women's bodies in the media. 
This is Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Isha, an Outcasting youth participant. A few months ago, a boy said to me, don't wear makeup. And when I asked him why, he bitterly responded, girls wear makeup to impress guys. I was taken aback, and quite frankly, I was pretty frustrated. First off, I was just wearing mascara. And secondly, even if I was wearing more, how did it concern him? This whole interaction was troubling, and it got me thinking. Do straight men truly think that everything women do or anything they wear is for their approval? Unfortunately, the way the media portray women contributes to this misconception. The male gaze, G-A-Z-E. No, we're not talking about male, G-A-Y-S. The male, G-A-Z-E, is a term coined in 1975 by the feminist Laura Mulvey. It's a phenomenon in the media in which women are portrayed in ways that are meant to satisfy the fantasies of heterosexual male viewers. How many times have we seen women depicted in provocative attire, even if it has no connection to the plot? In pop music videos and songs, women are often described as these things to be desired by straight men and are filmed in revealing clothing in a sexual setting. This objectification of women is nothing new and it continues to be a problem. It's kind of sad that we have to say it, but women are complete human beings independent of the attention or judgment of men. When women are objectified as sex objects in the media to satisfy straight men, their own talents, intellects, desires, even their ability to make their own choices in their lives, are ignored. They become two-dimensional figures, and this can lead women in the real world to deny or suppress these qualities in themselves and equate their self-worth with how much they are desired by heterosexual males. When bisexual and gay women in apparent same-sex relationships are hypersexualized for the male gaze, it particularly distorts real-life relationships that are solely between women. In Katy Perry's music video for her song, I Kissed a Girl, we see a group of women at a slumber party all on top of one another wearing lingerie. While the song's title suggests that the song is about women exploring their sexuality with other women, the music video seems to depict a male fantasy. On top of the music video, the lyrics are also problematic. They go, I hope my boyfriend don't mind it. It felt so wrong. It felt so right. These lyrics elicit the false idea that if a girl kisses another girl, it is out of rebellion, not an actual attraction to other women. These portrayals can be harmful to lesbian and bisexual women because they shift the emphasis of the two women in the relationship away from their own enjoyment and love for each other, once again, to the fantasies of straight men. It also perpetuates the idea that gay women cannot exist without straight men and invalidates their identities. By normalizing these male fetishes, more and more straight men will not take lesbian relationships seriously because they see lesbian couples as a source of entertainment rather than people in an actual relationship. All of this may seem overly theoretical, but it has real-world consequences. In 2019, the BBC reported that a lesbian couple was attacked by a group of young men after refusing to kiss in front of them. Both women were injured with blood running down their faces. An even more extreme way this can play out in the real world is the so-called corrective rape of lesbians by straight men. Some straight men already think that women who are attracted to other women can be straightened out and just have to meet the right man, which of course makes no sense. Corrective rape, which is a rape of lesbians intended to cure them of their homosexuality, is an example of how dangerous this idea of straightening out can be. 
The victims of these hate crimes are told that they are learning a lesson, the lesson being that they, as women, should be with and be attracted to men. The long-lasting impacts of corrective rape are undeniable. According to a professor of philosophy at a university in South Africa, about 10% of lesbians living in South Africa are HIV positive, and evidence shows that this is most likely due to corrective rape. Many of these women are also driven to suicide. These hate crimes are being perpetrated by men with an inflated sense of their own entitlement. Adding to the problem are archaic notions of women as subservient that continue to be perpetuated by the media that fail to portray women as equal to men. It's time for mainstream movies, television, and music videos to stop portraying women in these ways. LGBTQ people have made great strides toward the American promise of equality, though we're not there yet. But same-sex marriage is a reality, the controversy over LGBTQ people in the military finally seems to be fading, and the country is ready to see women in all their three-dimensional reality, in realistic settings and relationships, and this includes gay and bisexual women. People need to see what actual lesbian relationships look like rather than these spectacles that have been fabricated for the male gaze. By doing so, not only would these relationships be validated, but women in gay relationships would be less at risk for hate crimes. So getting back to the boy I talked about at the beginning, the boy who said, don't wear makeup, because girls wear makeup to impress guys. Looking back on it now, my first reaction was defensive. I was just wearing mascara, a tacit admission that there would have been something wrong with wearing more than just mascara. And that reflexive defensiveness, I felt, is part of how the problem has already played out in my own young life. What right did he have to judge me, anyway? Wearing makeup or not, or how much to wear, those are my choices. I'll admit that it's completely possible that his comment was innocent. Maybe he had a secret crush on me and was, in his awkward way, trying to let me know that he liked me as I was without makeup. And in all probability, he won't go out and start correctively raping lesbians. But the fact remains that his comment made me feel defensive and judged. Maybe, if the media become more responsible and realistic in their portrayals of girls and women, boys of his generation may grow up to be more respectful and compassionate men. Thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime, from Outcasting Media, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Outcasting Media is a production of Media for the Public Good, based in New York. This piece was created by the outcasting team, including Lil, Tim, Vivian, and me, Isha. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, watch outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to outcasting and related content. You can also find outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and other major podcast platforms. Thanks, and thanks for listening. We wrap up this week with congratulations to U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and his husband Chaston on their adoption of infant twins, Penelope Rose Buttigieg and Joseph August Buttigieg.
Thanks for discovering This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Some program material this week came from Melanie Keller and Michael LeBeau, produced by Brian Dushazer, from Pacifica Radio's Christopher Martinez, and from Outcaster Isha, produced by Mark Sophus. Frank Sinatra, Sam Cook, and Jordan Sparks performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed out the music. This way I thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Ivana Foundation, a bequest from Christopher David Trentham, and donors Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email TWORadio at AOL.com, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For associate producer Lucia Chappelle and the entire This Way Out crew, I'm Greg Gordon. We thank you for listening online at thiswayout.org and on KGAY, Thousand Palms, Coachella Valley, California, CJLY, Crawford Bay, New Denver, Nelson Sloan Valley, British Columbia, WADR, Janesville, Wisconsin, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned.